And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello everybody and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I tried not to raise my hands above my head and still failed laughing at me for that failure is Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tate. I'm sorry, it's a very visual joke for an audio medium, but every time you start the show, you put your arms in the air, and it just reminds me of when you're on a roller coaster and like the, the, the thing comes down, the, the support <laughs> yeah. thing comes down. And I, I do it too, out of habit now. Yeah. I love it. See... Are you actually able to keep your hands above your head? Because I am still, I still have that little like uh, voice in the back of my head saying, "You know, the bar could come up. You could go flying out of this roller coaster, and then the arms <laughs> sort of go down every now and then." I would love to be the one who can keep them up the whole time. I don't always succeed. Are you able to do that? Danger's my middle name, baby. <laughs> I can tell by the uh, the running snood, the backwards hat. He's a dangerous man, Ryan Bailey. Uh, that's that's what I've always said, and what everyone has always said. I have been running on the mean streets of South Charlotte today, yes, yes, it's, uh, it's terrifying out there. I mean, it's not as seditious as some other streets uh, around, these, uh, around this country, but it, yeah, I've got to keep my eyes about me out here. Uh, is your first uh, studio album going to be called On the Streets of South Charlotte? My first? Haley, you've not been following my career. I'm on like number seven now. My, my apologies. I do apologize. I don't celebrate the entire Ryan Bailey discography. Well, do you, have you recorded stuff? Do you have a place where people can hear you sing songs that uh, isn't in the Metro Charlotte area? I do. I do. <gasps> I have a SoundCloud. <gasps> I didn't know. But we're not here to discuss that, though, Tay Tay. We're not here to discuss Oh, that. but next show we will be. Next show we will be, my <laughs> friend. Until then, we are here to discuss some listener questions. We've got seven or so, last I counted. We're going to start with one from Patrick Delaney. There's a popular phrase on foot soccer ball Twitter, the streets won't forget. It's about a player who was great for a short period of time, such as the streets won't forget Adel Tarapt. Who is your favorite the streets won't forget player is the question. But before we get to that question, Ryan, were you familiar with this phrase? Because I will admit that I was not. I had to look it up. I did not know it. I'm sorry. I'm an old person. I apologize. I did, and then I think I saw like where it might come from, and then I felt even older and, to be honest, whiter. So, uh, yes, I'm glad that we're on the same page when it comes to not being familiar with the slang of the children. I don't know how old Patrick Delaney is. He may well be older than both of us. I do have different reference points, and The Streets are a very popular sort of urban music mm-hmm. collective from the UK. So when, it, when I first saw The Streets, when I forget, I was thinking, is it Mike Skinner from The Streets who's not forgetting something? Uh, so I had I had the same thing. I was like... Uh, fit, but you know it. Like, is that what we're talking about? A grand don't come for free. I guess that is sort of the streets. Did, you have, forgetting. did the streets come out here, or is that specialist knowledge of yours? That might be specialist knowledge because my brother okay. worked in a record store and knew that I was into like uh football and, and the hip hop. So maybe that was it. I didn't know it was a collective. I always thought it was just Mike Skinner's said, performing name. Yeah, I said collective. He he does 
uh, collaborate, but it's mainly just him. Yeah. I see. I see. I so misspoke. If, if you want to hear a person rap about their emotions and be British, Mike Skinner, The Streets is for you. Uh, but in terms of players that The Streets will not forget, Ryan, who are some that you had? I've got a few. I'm going to start off with one that's uh, uh, the streets will not forget, but only if those streets uh, were walked by someone in their mid to late 30s or beyond, because that's what I am. And I keep mentioning in this show how old I am. I apologize (laughs) for uh, ramming that down your throats. But my one is a mid 90s player. I don't know how many people have heard of him play for Tottenham. It was a winger from Portugal, Jose Dominguez. Does the oh, name mean anything to it, you? It does not. To the extent that I thought you were setting up a, like, it was going to be a very well-known name. No, uh, that name does not ring a bell, I will admit. So mid-90s Tottenham had some decent players. They had David Giller and players, like, sort of some flair players, one of whom was Jose, uh, Jose Dominguez, um, who, was, who was from Lisbon. Uh, I think he played at Sporting before he came to Tottenham. But he was a tiny, tiny man. I think he, he, uh, his, his Wikipedia said he was 5'5". Five, five. I could believe he was shorter yep. than that. But like had the, had the 90s curtains thing going on as a hairstyle and was just a really, really creative and fancy player. I went to a reserve game, Wimbledon against Tottenham, which had about three people and their dogs uh, watching it uh, one rainy Tuesday. And Jose Dominguez was coming back from injury, so they would often play players like that. Uh, in the reserves to get them back up to speed and he was maybe 20 or 30 times better than every other player on the field it was insane it was like men against boys because and (laughs) if you go on youtube and check him out jose dominguez he's got some really sort of awesome goals that he scored as well and he's a name that nobody really knows anymore Tottenham fans will probably know him but no one else really does so he was a, a a decent premier league player who was only there in a flash i think he probably only played a couple of seasons he fell out of favor at tottenham i think with George Graham. So, yeah, a, a bit of a flash in the pan, and I've just looked it up. He's 46 years old now. Goodness me. Wow. But the streets of North London will not forget him? Well, some streets, yeah, i say. It depends. <laughs> if, if it's these kids who... The, the kids who have invented the phrase the streets won't forget, they might have forgotten if, they've, if they ever knew. <laughs> Uh, I have gone... Uh, I don't have any anybody from that far back. I think the furthest back I'm going is, like, the the late... 2000s uh, because I'm going to start with uh, Amir Zaki from Wigan. Remember Amir oh, Zaki? Oh, good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, like, came in, uh, I think had, had had a reputation in Egypt for the Egyptian national team and then for, I forget which club it was. I'm going to guess Al-Ali, but uh, fans will not love if I got that wrong since they tend to not like each other. But he comes to Wigan and uh, like cannot stop scoring in his first few games. I think scores in every single one of his first seven games, similar to Erling Haaland. I think midway through the season was third top scorer in the Premier League and then did not score again for the rest of the season. Fell out spectacularly with Steve Bruce, was referred to as one of the least professional players Bruce had ever encountered. Fines, all of this stuff, none of it mattered. It was on a one-year loan he came, and that one-year loan was not picked up. It was not made permanent despite him scoring those goals, but it was this player who sort of couldn't stop scoring. Like The hype train was about him. I remember listening to Football Weekly, and they were like, who is this guy? It's amazing. It's so cool. And then nothing. So I think the streets yeah. of Wigan, if there are streets there, uh, will remember him uh, quite well. And that's one that stood out for me. There are streets in Wigan. I can <laughs> confirm that. Okay, um, cool. That's a good one. That's reminded me of Mido, uh, who was a oh, fellow God. Egyptian who, yeah. at Tottenham and Middlesbrough, I want to say, yep. um, who was sort of very flash in the pan as well. But um, he got He liked things cooked in a pan. That's what I he would say about Mido. In- <laughs> exactly, yeah. He got heavier and not in status. I'll say that. Um <laughs> Uh, can I, on, on that kind of early 2000s note, can I have JJ Okocha? Is that is Ooh. that a Streets Won't Forget or is he too well known? 
Uh, for me, for me, he's really he's one of my favorite players. So for me, I'm, right. I'm probably a bad person to ask. But that was the only like flair move I could pull off as a teenager was the Okocha move. So that's why he looms large for me. But maybe not for other folk. What, why does he loom large for you? Just because he was just he, he epitomized that Bolton team for me. Mm-hmm. It was that Bolton period where he was there, um, and he was he's still a fan favorite. I think Bolton yeah. fans still talk about him. And he scored. I can't, was it against West Ham? He scored like some ridiculous goal, which is like Bolton's greatest goal ever they still they still uh hold it up in high regard but this was this was a period of bottom where they had yuri jorkaev and they yeah. had like ivan campo and all these really high class players like world cup winners coming to bolton which felt so wildly unlikely this was not long after they moved to the what was then the reebok stadium their new sort of fancy stadium and on the outskirts of manchester having come from um uh sort of a, a more humble ground previously and they became the sort of oh Sam Allardyce is steering this team towards the top 10. They, they finished eighth, I think, in mm-hmm. 03, 04. And then things have started to go slightly wrong since then. It turns out slightly if you pump wrong. all that money in and you don't <laughs> sort of have good financial planning, it can lead you towards uh, the brink of financial disaster, as Bolton discovered around 10 years later, and they're sort of uh, not doing so well at the moment. But hey, they had fun with JJ. <laughs> they did. I'm also glad you brought up Ivan Campo because I still get him confused with Ivan Cavallero. And then I'm like, how is he still playing and looking as good as he does? So, uh, yes, Ivan Campo, a, diff- a different player than Ivan uh, Cavallero for sure. That's a good we shot. Saw, um, I saw Ivan Campo at the airport once. It was very exciting. His hair is big. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. Uh, I've got a few more. Uh, quick one would be the combo. I saw this posted elsewhere. I am lifting it, uh, but it does loom large. The Dembaba Papis, uh, Dembasise, I believe it was. Uh, 29 goals between them playing for Newcastle. That was like, I think, uh, uh, Papis Dembasise scoring with the outside of a foot from like zero angle. And you kind of were, had to watch Newcastle or at least watch the match of the day highlights because you could always kind of count on one of them to score some sort of ridiculous goal. Then, that doesn't end up being a long-lasting partnership, to say the least. More recently, one that like immediately came to mind once I realized what this phrase was about would be Dimitri Payet. Uh, moving to West Ham, like being this performer for West Ham, I remember at Euro 2016 when he comes on and scores, and uh, Slavon Bilic, who was then his manager at West Ham, doing like, TV analysis, was like celebrating, like, see, I told you, vindication, this guy's going to come good. Then he has phantom back pain and forces a move back to France. But for that one season, for that, like, like, that brief period in England, he was this unplayable player for a club that you usually don't associate with unplayable players. I like it. I like it a lot. And by, by the way, Taylor, I'm surprised, as a Manchester United fan, that two words have not passed your lips. One is Federico. Oh, okay. And, and the other Michaela. one would be Makeda. Uh, yeah. I thought about him. I went for Adnan Yanazai instead because that was oh. one who, like, when he first uh, comes into the squad with David Moyes, he's, like, the lone bright spot that season, scoring goals, flicks and tricks, and it's like, okay, maybe it's the new Ronaldo, and he's a multinational winger who could do so many different things. And then basically the thing he did was follow David Moyes to different clubs, follows him to Sunderland, follows him to Real Sociedad, where he remains. But that was a player who I was sure was the next Ronaldo, sort of justified the hope very briefly or the hype very briefly, and then fell off. I had him a little bit ahead of Makeda just because I think Makeda was a bit more flash in the pan. Yanez, I had a couple more months, which to me is is more uh, streets won't forget as opposed to one-hit wonders. If memory serves correct, I think Janazai was eligible for six different nations for international duty. And there was this big clamber. Oh, he could play for England. He could save England. And yeah, he didn't do that. 
Like I remember, I, yeah, I remember that. I remember like he, his contract only had like a year or two left on it. It was a, should they give him a five year deal or a six year deal? And it was just like he is definitely going to be the guy. And now the streets won't forget, uh, but Manchester United certainly has. Yeah, uh, and I've got another couple if you'll Please. indulge me, Tay Tay. Mm-hmm. A name we've mentioned before on uh, on a listener questions episode, uh, Michu. Mm-hmm. Michu. I was Swansea. wondering if he would come up. I was wondering if he would come up. Because he, he's uh, he's streets won't forget and sort of flash in the pan and one hit one one season wonders. There's kind of a lot of overlap here, I think. Mm-hmm. And Michu maybe falls into all three categories. When he first came to um, Swansea, uh, it was 2012-13. He got 18 goals in the league, 22 overall that season in Michael Laudrup's team. Was something of a phenomenon. And then the following season, he scored two goals. And then he disappeared <laughs> out of sight. That seems to be a, a, a trend with Swansea, because I would say the other one that just comes to mind for them would be Buffa Tempe Gomez, who comes in, like, I think he says he familiarized himself with the club playing football manager, that he knew nothing about them. He does the Puma celebration, scores some goals, now is in Saudi Arabia, I think before that, Turkey. But again, another player who briefly, similar to Mishu, we thought, like, oh, he's scoring goals, he's leading the line, it's this kind of promising, exciting team, and then it really wasn't meant to be. But yeah, I think Mishu... Like is in a number of different categories when it comes to players that won't be forgotten. One hit wonders, beautiful men who scored goals, all of these things, all of these things. I'm blanking on the name of the striker who Swansea sold to Man City and he didn't do much at Man City. It cost 25 million. Oh, and he sang his own name. Oh, that's yeah. going to annoy me. Uh, but while we're thinking of that, another player who was sold to Man City for a lot of time, uh, a lot of time, a lot of money, Benjani from Portsmouth. Yes. Remember him? Yeah, sort I do of remember two, him. Late 2000s. Uh, was sort of phenomenal at Portsmouth. And, oh, yeah, he's going to got this big move to a big club. He did. He went to Man City for £8 million. And I don't know what he did there. I don't think he played <laughs> soccer. <laughs> yeah, I think he was he in that in that time period where they were just like splashing money, trying to sign whomever they could to show that they meant business. Yeah, so this was sort of the the period when they signed Rubinho. And yeah. it was just when the new ownership group came in. And it was, yeah, look what we can do. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that was one of their moves. I need you to know, Wilford Boney, there it is. There oh, it was going to drive me nuts this entire show. Because <laughs> I remember him singing his own, like, it was a very catchy song. And all I could remember for the longest time trying to remember his name was the Yaya song, because the Yaya Torre song is the best song there is. Uh, but yes, Wilford Boney would be the other one. Yeah, a, a, a strong, proud history of Swansea having players that seem like they're going to do big things and then don't. Maybe the same goes for Swansea as well. Uh, yeah. Any other Streets Won't Forget players for you? I have one more, but I, I've thought about it further, and I think it might be fraudulent. It was Timu Puki, Timu Puki, I should say, from Norwich, coming in and sort of taking the Premier League by yeah. storm. It's not often that a striker can come up from the championship and do so well, and he wasn't expected to do well, and he sort of came out the gate swinging with Norwich in the Premier League in that, in that uh, most recent Premier League season they had. So I thought that was the streets won't forget, but then I actually realised there are divisions beyond the Premier League. Norwich are currently top of the championship. He scored 11 goals this season already. He is not in the rear view just yet. He's the fourth top scorer in the championship right now, so maybe a little more time and perspective before we put him in that category. Weirdly, weirdly I agree with both of those things. I I agree that it's like maybe harsh to put him in there and he's still doing things. But simultaneously, I think my takeaway from this is that it's not just that they were they scored a meaningful goal or they had a meaningful run of form. It's other little things that make them stand out. And for Timu Puki, number one, it's like Finnish striker with a fun name, but then also playing for Norwich and then scoring goals and like kind of couldn't stop scoring. Doesn't look like the most elite athlete at the same time. No disrespect intended. It's just, you know. 
kind of balding, tall, kind of pale, does it like a little bit like awkward in his run, and yet still scoring goals. I think you have to have those little other elements that make them stand out. So I think Timu Puki will be one who the streets will not forget, even if he continues to score goals and make it back to the Premier League and score goals there. I felt seen when you were making that description of a man who <laughs> kind of runs and going slightly bald and pale. It, it felt like uh, you were describing someone uh, in this conversation. Anyway, <laughs> but then you mentioned scoring goals, and then I knew it wasn't me. Exactly, exactly. That was the big. That was the big difference there. Uh, but I really did enjoy that question, even if I did not uh, know the phrase heading into it. But thank you to Patrick for that one. Thank you to Sean McNamara for the next question. It's an interesting one because it immediately – I had like an immediate answer like, ah, and then I thought more about it and it gets a little bit more nuanced. So I'm excited for Ryan's answer. Sean asks, Weston McKinney for Paul Pogba in a straight-up swap. Who says no? Manchester United, Juventus, neither or both. And who should say no? I think Mina Riola says no for a start. Um, <laughs> that'll be Paul Pogba's agent. Oh, um, man, that is a good and depressing answer. We know that uh, Mina Riolo makes a lot of money from player transfers, and we know that um, he made an awful lot of money when Paul Pogba made, went to Manchester United. Was it like mm-hmm. 19 million? It was some really big, absurd number that he made yeah. for, of commission from Pogba's most recent uh, uh, transfer. So if it was a swap and there was no money involved, I think Mino would have a thing or two to say about that. I think if there was another category of people who would say no, it would be the Man United board. I agree. Uh, Ed Woodward would also say no. If you look on Transfer Mart right now, Transfer Marked, um, Paul Pogba's value is $71.5 million. Weston McKinney's is $21.5 million. You will note that one figure is significantly <laughs> lower than the other. So yep. in monetary financial terms, doesn't make a lot of sense. I've, I've got a few more yes and no's for this one, but I'll hand over the reins for now, Taylor. Um, I will try to keep this one on track because sometimes when it's Manchester United related, the rambling begins. I I will say that I am with you that I think it is not the – even with the American market aspect of things, I think it's not enough to justify that difference in valuation. And I think it also would then mean – it pretty much means that Paul Pogba was a failure at Manchester United. If you do that sort of swap deal, it's a very – I don't know how to pronounce the word. Ignominious? Ignominious? Whatever it is. Like, it's a very inglorious departure if you're going from this record signing to, oh, yeah, it's a swap deal for a player who's worth not even a third of your value. But I also think... You pronounce it, by the way, it's ignominious. (laughs) I love you, Ryan. I really do. Uh, But I think, like, if you look at it, though, from what Manchester United have done on the field, what Paul Pogba has not done on the field... You have Van de Beek maybe there to replace him if and when he does move. Weston McKinney feels like a good understudy, potential deputy, potential replacement. Like So it does make sense in terms of what Weston McKinney could be for that team to some extent. I just don't think Manchester United would ever be okay with the optics on that one. Yeah, and I had to think about this from both clubs' perspective as well. If I was on a gun Solskjaer, I think I'd be inclined to say yes to this deal right. because it's it, weird mm-hmm. it, he he probably is aware that Paul Pogba not entirely happy at the Manchester United setup probably wants out from the evidence we have he's had nine Premier League starts this season he was unused as an unused substitute in the League Cup semi-final against Manchester City uh, this midweek apparently there was a League Cup semi-final with Who Manchester knew? City this week uh, there was other things on my mind on that particular Wednesday yep. I didn't catch the game actually but then uh, it, if you look at where McKenney would fit into that Man United team, would he be in that Scott McTominay 
middle role, do we think? Or where, where, would he, where would he fit? I think he'd be in that number eight, like the shuttler between a number six and a number ten. It is a very Manchester United thing to make a big sort of swap, make a big transfer for a player that doesn't really fit the current system or is like surplus to requirements in the current system. Because I think he'd play where Pogba plays, where Van de Beek plays. So you'd be a, there'd be another player coming in to play a role where you already have somebody. Maybe they would try him at that number six because I think Solskjaer, to your point, would like the the tenacity, he would like the fight, he would like the like the energy of Weston McKinney, and maybe he could use him that way. I don't know about his passing ability, though it has gotten better. I don't know if he would be good enough or defensively oriented enough to do that number six job, but I think he'd be in that midfield somewhere. I'm confident with that yeah. one. So I'm not sure if it would work from a Manchester United mm-hmm. perspective on the playing field. And then if you look at Juve, yes, he yeah. had a great amount of success at Juventus, did Paul Pogba. But Weston McKennie's doing rather well there now, coming off the bench to get a, a goal in the win over Ma- uh, Milan midweek. That's a that's a big mm-hmm. result for Juventus. And if you're Andrea Pirlo, I don't know if he cares because I'm not convinced he cares about anything. I think he's too laid back to care about literally anything. But that's another con- conversation for another day. <laughs> but you know, he's got players like Rabiot, like Bentancur, and uh, he, you know, he, and McKennie who he uses a mm-hmm. lot. So, what would it be like a middle of Arthur McKennie? Oh, you couldn't have McKinney and Pogba because they'd be swapped. No, right. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I think he's got... I'm not sure if, if he'd want to lose McKinney and gain Pogba if that would be a net gain for Juventus given the uses yeah. that McKinney has at the moment. Yeah, I think that that's a fair point. And then I think from the salary standpoint, Juve, obviously a big club with a decent amount of money, but as we saw with that Artur Pjanic swap, not the most money. So I don't know if they would love the salary. I feel like it would just it would require Man United paying some of Paul Pogba's salary, which I don't think they're ever going to do. So there's that financial financial part to it. And then there is, like, like I'm sure this isn't what Sean necessarily was looking for, but the reality is it's worth remembering Weston McKinney is on loan at Juve right now, so it would require them making that deal permanent to then move him to Manchester United. So it would also require a little bit of logistical work, and maybe that's another reason why Juve would say no, though I'm sure they wouldn't mind having Paul Pogba and Cristiano Ronaldo playing together. Indeed. All right. So we, we're agreeing that this shouldn't be done, right? <laughs> yeah, it should not be done. I think my answer remains Manchester United probably say no more strongly. And I think both would probably end up saying no, but also both would maybe consider it for longer than we might think. That's my but sort of uh, general answer. Taylor Rockwell, the Manchester United fan, I think would make the swap, wouldn't he? Taylor, the Manchester United fan, would absolutely make that swap, which yeah. is a strange thing to say. I love me some Paul Pogba. I just don't always love me some Paul Pogba. That's how I'll phrase that one. We've got more listener questions to come. But before that, let's have a word from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we are back. Mr. Bailey, why don't you ask the next question since I believe it is intended for me? 
I hang on. What question are we talking about here? Oh, I know the question exactly. The one. Excuse me. I'll look at the running order. It's from Ira Jersey. Hello, Ira. How are you doing today? Good to hear from you. A personal question he directs at your good self, Mr. Rockwell, uh, but offers that um, anyone else on this podcast can answer too, and maybe I'll chip in here and there. Please do. If Manchester United win the League Cup, question Oops. out of date asterisk, mm-hmm. and make the Champions League, would you consider that a successful season? So I'm going to interpret that as if Manchester United win a cup and make the Champions League, ah. finish in the top four, would you consider that a successful season for this Manchester United team? I've got thoughts. I will cede the floor to the uh, intended answerer of here. So I've been watching too much of uh, the Senate and the House. I'll, I'll, I'll stop talking like that. Have your answer now. Go on. I shall. Um, I would say uh, this obviously was submitted before Manchester United were eliminated by Man City in the League Cup, as Ryan mentioned. I also watched that game, and it was the least I've ever cared about Manchester United losing a derby because, yes, bigger things were happening. Uh, but I will say, even if they had won that one, I, I really... It's harsh. I do not care about the League Cup. Just because of... What it is, the limited prize money, how long it was, the the competition where smaller teams maybe took it seriously, larger teams played their academy players. It seems like like yesterday, I think both teams played pretty str- strong sides, but I still have a hard time getting like no one is is bouncing their uh, their grandchild on their knee talking about a league cup win. So I think for me, uh, have you spoken to many Tottenham fans lately? Well, there is that. <laughs> Few people are doing it. Um, so I think that wouldn't have been as big of a factor for me. I think you're wisely sw- switching it to A Cup, so that could be Europa League, it could be the FA Cup. I honestly cannot remember if they're still alive in the FA Cup. Um, I think that probably, yeah, I think if you win the FA Cup and you qualify for the Champions League, I think that's a successful season. I think if you qualify for the Champions League and win the Europa League, that's certainly a successful season. I remain, like, rooted in I still don't fully know what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wants to do from game to to game I think he likes to play on the counter but I like doesn't necessarily know what to do when they have the ball against a bunkered team and I think that remains like in my thinking so it's hard for me to be like yeah it'd be great if they qualify for the Champions League but are they playing better like I think that's where I continue to have a little bit of a stumbling block so I'm curious if you have thoughts on this one Ryan for me if Manchester United win a cup and make the Champions League Hard yes, successful mm-hmm. season. There's yeah. no, I, I can't see any other way of interpreting that question, frankly, because uh, it, silverware is what we, you know, what a fan wants to, from a fan perspective, that's what you want your team. You want mm-hmm. your team to get to finals. You want your team to win things. That's great. Making the Champions League is what the boffins who write the checks want. That's what it's, uh, uh, Ed Woodward wants um, <laughs> when he's not swapping Weston McKenney for Paul Pogba. Obviously. So uh, I, I think that has to be, Deemed a success. A trophy is success. Qualifying mm-hmm. for the Champions League is success. That's double success, maybe. I'll go for that. And particularly in this weird season that we're having, this weird year we're having, where there's more parity, where there's mm-hmm. more wonkiness between, um, t- between the teams, increased competition. This is a team that hasn't had a trophy in the last two seasons. Am I right? I think no trophies last season. I think mm-hmm. the season before that didn't even get into the Champions League, if I'm remembering my Man United seasons correctly. You go back to the the last one I yeah. consider a super successful season. That would be Jose Mourinho when he won the Europa League. Yep. Did he get the League Cup that season as well? Maybe. Uh, probably because that feels like a thing he would celebrate and then I think finished second that season as well. I think that was actually the season before he finished okay. second and then he finished outside the Champions League right, that season. You're right, you're right, you're right. So even so, I'd still consider that excess because he won a major European trophy and the one that we've mm-hmm. established is not as important but still is a piece of silverware. But I think <laughs> I think you could... I would even argue you could call it a successful season this season to finish in the top four, given how crazy it is. 
with yeah, or without I, another. Yeah, I think I think it's 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 always a, a difficult like not difficult, just a strange thing when this question gets asked about a team that are currently in the top four. Because normally it's like like Manchester United in seasons past have been like sixth or seventh or eighth or even further down. Earlier this season, when you're in like thirteenth, if you ask me if they finish top four, is it a success? I say yes. Now that they're in the top four, it's a little bit like, well, they're already there. So is it like if the season ends right now, is it a success? I, I don't know. But I think that's probably a little bit too nuanced. I think to your point, if you make the Champions League and you're in that next season, that means a lot of money. That means a lot of prestige. It means you're still able to sign some players that maybe you otherwise wouldn't be. Yeah, I think it is probably a success. I still have some concern. I'm not like joyously celebrating it, but I'm I'm quietly enthusiastic that they've uh, made it to the Champions League. Certainly more so than I would be if they had won the League Cup. If they won the League Cup and didn't make the Champions League, I am definitely more disappointed than not winning the League Cup and qualifying for the Champions League. Right, right. I mean, overall, if the PE teacher wins a, wins a, sil- a trophy, that's a, that's got to be a success, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> I hear your disrespect, and it hurts feelings. Let's move to another one. Let's move to Robert Cordova, uh, who asks, where does Paolo Rossi rank in the importance of Italian football? Paolo Rossi uh, passing away earlier in December at a relatively young age. I'd say like 62, I think he was, or early 60s. Uh, but it, Italian, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say legend, and maybe that's the place to start. But uh, famed Italian goal scorer helps them uh, win World Cup glory, wins lots of other things, but also a little bit of a controversial figure as well. Yeah, I think, uh, I'll say it from the start, I think he has to be considered a legend because okay. um, he, he his sort of moment in the sun was the 1982 World Cup final. He, mm-hmm. he was golden boot in that in that competition. He scored six goals. Um, he was the golden ball winner. He won the Ballon d'Or that season as well. He scored in the final. He scored the first goal of the World Cup final over, um, over West Germany. Um, so led Italy mm-hmm. to a World Cup title. They hadn't won the World Cup uh, previously, their last win was 1938 before so, that. It's a while ago. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so the around. There you go. A long old gap. And that was a big, big, cathartic, huge moment yeah. for Italy. You know, not least beating the Germans 40 years after, or not oh, that yeah. long, relatively speaking, after yeah. the whole political unpleasantness which occurred in Europe at that yep. time. So, and also, like in the UK, it was a time of sort of social and political unrest in Italy as well. So it was a very important moment for them. And, you know, as you mentioned, he was a controversial figure. It was the season before or, or the season leading up to that World Cup where he was banned for match fixing, I believe. Two years. Was it? Yeah. Two years. And he only just, and I think he only just came back into sort of the professional game mm-hmm. not that long before that World Cup, a couple of months beforehand, if I'm right. But I think, he, you know, he's not, I don't think he's a Del Piero. I don't think he's a Baggio. I don't think he'd be remembered for his unbelievable silky skills. Mm-hmm. But he was a legend for basically carrying, or maybe not the right term, but leading Italy to that very, very important World Cup win that they had at that point. And I'll draw a parallel with England because that is my want. Uh, Jeff Hurst. Jeff Hurst, who scored the hat-trick in the 1966 World Cup final, he, you know, he got a knighthood, as many of those England players did. He will be forever lauded. There'll be statues of him for, for all of time in England. He wasn't England's starting striker. That was Jimmy Greaves who actually weirdly got hepatitis and he wasn't fully fit for the 66 tournament, but he was the star striker for England at that time. Jeff Hurst, who played for West Ham, was sort of drafted in uh, almost at the last hour. He didn't even play the whole tournament for England. So he's another example of a player who will forever be a legend, even though he wasn't like 
the man in the team, if that makes sense. It does. I'm glad you answered first, because I think I sort of forgot the question being, where does he rank in the importance of Italian football? And I think I was looking at, like, the quality, is he the most famous player? And I think you've said it correctly, which is, he's not really. And, it, and I think part of that is because... He doesn't do some of the things that like even Gattuso does or Pirlo does. Like he is he's a he's a very good goal scorer. What I kept seeing and watching him play was a little bit like an early Inzaghi. Like he's very good at beating a line, about getting on the end of a ball, some opportunistic finishes, the hat trick against Brazil in the eighty two World Cup. One of those is a good like header at the back post. He makes a smart run. One of them is he intercepts a, a wayward pass from a Brazilian player, gets around a defender, shoots and scores. One of them is like redirects one uh, uh, that was going off frame onto frame and scores. And it's sort of like right time opportunistic, but it's also that element of when you do it so consistently, it stops being like, oh, he just happens to be in the right place. And instead, it's like he always finds a way to be where he needs to be. So I think there's that element to it. I think also that he retires – I think at the age of 30, due to uh, accumulated injury, then there's the 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 match-fixing scandal banned for two years, as you mentioned. So I had him as like a weird combination of Inzaghi, like Owen Hargraves for what could have been if he had stayed fit, and Pete Rose, the uh, baseball player who was banned for betting on his own games or betting on games but not betting against his team. I forget what the nuances are there other than that Pete Rose thinks he shouldn't be banned and the various commissioners of baseball do. Uh, so I think those three things rolled together. I guess Inzaghi, Hargraves, and Pete Rose is a little bit of a legend. So I think in the importance of Italian football for what he represented for not winning the World Cup but then also winning silverware with Juve at club level, I think, yeah, he's probably up there, but in terms of importance, he's probably not the most important. I'm going to put him in the second way of important Italian players. Yeah, and you touched on the domestic stuff there too. Scudetti with Juventus mm-hmm. and the European Cup in 85 with Juventus on the, the, the one against Liverpool with the Heisel disaster, incidentally. Yeah. Um, if you were to rank or list the top 10 Italian players, you know, you'd have your Maldinis, your Pielos, yeah. your Fra- Franco Baresi, your Del Piero's, your Baggio's. Exactly. I don't think Paolo Rossi makes that list, but Robert's mm-hmm. question was the importance mm-hmm. and that sort of cultural importance as well as sporting yeah. importance. I think it's I think it's huge. Okay. All right. So yeah, it, up there I think is the consensus, and then I think Ryan has him a little higher than I do. But I think yeah, you're sticking with the importance aspect, and I think that's the way to be. So let's go with Ryan's answer on this one. Let's see if Ryan has an equally wise answer for Drew Jordan's question: Why are there not more trades in European soccer, particularly in the Premier League? Uh, the example Drew gives, Deli Ali is sitting on the bench wasting time and collecting paychecks at Spurs. Couldn't Spurs benefit from trading him somewhere and getting a player in return, a quality player in return? Are there league rules that make trades more difficult, or is it difficult to coordinate trades between leagues? I would guess that Brexit has made that more complex as well, says Drew. Why are there not more trades in European soccer? My answer, my short answer, Tete, is for the same reason that I don't use magic beans to barter at the market for my food. I use money. Uh, money is a far significant, a far better way of doing this. It's, it's basically, that was a bit of a facetious answer, but it's because European clubs don't have to trade. Right. There's a transfer system that relies on sort of, you know, liquid cash, which is a much better way of doing things. And obviously, uh, you know, with the North American system where t- players contracts are with the league rather than the team is that yeah, this that's is, correct this is the it? key thing i think yeah yeah mm-hmm. so obviously with each team in europe being an individual entity and um it's not just a case of where in north america you would switch registrations for a player there is a financial and a contract uh, angle to it as well yeah so you know i think a swap a, a, a trade would happen easily 
or more easily if both players are out of contract and you deem them to be of equal value mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and importance to either respective side. But I just think that's so rare that that could possibly happen. Yeah. It's, it's just much, much easier to buy a player and then you know, sell someone to somewhere else. It's just, you know, the free market is much easier to do it that way. Agreed. Yeah. And I think with the free market, uh, that's a key one there because, yeah, to your point, it's not like in the NBA where the contract moves with the player. Same thing with baseball, same thing with the NFL. If they've got a deal, they've got that deal until they sign a new one. With uh, soccer, European soccer, and I think global soccer, aside from MLS and a few other leagues, that contract does not move. So if you wanted to do that trade, you then have to negotiate with the player, which means you then have to like hope that they're on a similar wage or that both players are okay with the move. That's another big part of it is that inevitably, unless it is uh, like Real Madrid trading with Barcelona or Barcelona trading with Bayern Munich, there's going to be a one player leaving for a perceived smaller club. That's going to make it a harder thing to have happen when you don't have that kind of closed system where everybody's theoretically of the same level. And then just I think another aspect of it is just that it's it's rare that you're going to want to get rid of a player like Spurs are OK with getting rid of Dele Ali, let's say, uh, for a, a swap deal. But in terms of finding a club that want Dele Ali and then have a player that Spurs also want, I think it's such a rare thing to have that combination. Even when you do like Mkhitaryan moving to Arsenal, like it still requires a lot of negotiation and weighed structuring and balancing things. And it just becomes a very difficult situation that even then isn't really a swap deal, even though it's labeled as such because you have so much money involved and salaries and all that type of thing. So I think in the end, to Ryan's point, it's just easier to buy somebody and sell the player than find a swap that works for every single person and the players will agree to and the agents will agree to, to your earlier point about Mino Raiola. Well, that's another thing. Um, the, the system, it wouldn't really work for agents having swaps mm-hmm. like that. The agents wouldn't get their fees and if there's no uh, cash involved. And I think also maybe there's an element of player power as well yeah. in, in sort of the North American system where, or certainly no, other North American sports, it's like, hey, you're getting traded to a city 2,000 miles away yep. tomorrow. See you later. See ya. That doesn't really happen with, uh, with European teams or even uh, teams outside of North America elsewhere because the players have a bit more say on their destiny. Um, but I think... The, you hit the nail on the head there, Taylor, in that it's not often that trades would be mutually beneficial between mm. two teams where the the, 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 the the attributes that one player would bring to another team and vice yeah. versa would be exactly mirrored. I think that's just, it, it would be the, the um, turn of events for that to happen would be very unlikely. And, and swaps have happened. Yeah. Um, the big one that springs to mind is Samueto and uh, Zlatan between Inter and Barcelona, but there was cash involved in mm-hmm. that deal. And another one which uh, sprung to mind as well was Josie Altador and Jermaine Defoe between Sunderland oh, yeah. and Toronto. That was a swap, but there was also cash involved in right. that one. It's not It's not just a, hey, I'll have him and you have him. It was still, I think, my understanding is they were still separate uh, cash transactions, but just happened to happen at the same time between those two teams. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised with that in mind that there are more swaps proposed than we probably hear about. There are more, I wouldn't even say trades, just like swap of one player for another proposed. And then I think you either get a like, well, not for that amount of money or not for this. And then you get that sort of like, yeah, we'll do that, but you've got to pay us another two million or something. Or it becomes the jumping off point for like, no, we kind of want to keep that player, but we are interested in the player you're selling. Or we don't want the guy that you want, but uh, we don't want the player you're offering. And it, and it becomes a sort of starting point for negotiations. But I think player movement is the big one. The, the 
I think it's totally fair for a player playing in London to not then suddenly want to wake up in an Eastern European league or or Russia or China. I think you've got to like be able to have a little bit of uh, control over your own destiny. Whereas with the NBA, there's a limited number of top tier NBA teams or basketball teams in the world, all of them playing in North America. I would argue. So I think like it makes it more okay, even if sometimes the distance that a player is traded in the NBA is significantly further than like uh, a player moving from Spain to Germany would be. Yeah. We don't have a barter economy, Tate. We don't need trades. <laughs> we do not. We do not. What we do have is uh, more sponsors to get to, so we'll take a break to hear from them, and then we'll be back with our final two listener questions of the day. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We are back with more listener questions. Uh, Ryan says we have three remaining. Have I missed one, or has Ryan forgotten to move his order around? <laughs> Ryan now says two. two. <laughs> <laughs> the first one, the penultimate question, comes from Zach Lippert. Zach, apologies in advance if I misunderstood your question. We shall see. The question was, with Schalke hurtling towards the record for longest winless streak in Germany, I believe they would overtake Tasmania Berlin. I know nothing about Tasmania Berlin. Zach asks, what are famous bad records that clubs are proud of? And that's the part that I think is a little confusing, at least for me it was, because there are famous bad records. But in terms of bad records that clubs or fans then celebrate, that is a little bit more of, of a challenge. Ryan, what did you make of this question? Were you able to find some that teams or fans or whomever uh, are proud of, they boast about being bad? I don't think so. But mm -hmm. what I could sort of build into is the, the um, English tendency to be 
joke about being negative about oneself, to be mm. self-deprecating and to be deprecating about the team that one supports. And that led me to looking into um, the kind of streaks that the England team have gotten into. And they had the longest, I believe, penalty-less streak um, of any team. Uh, they went 53 – this is a, a Guardian uh, test your knowledge. I found the answer to this on in the end. They went 53 games without being awarded a penalty. That was four and a half years' worth of games. Uh, the, they, they scored one in February 86. That was Brian Robson who scored that one. They didn't get one again until the World Cup quarterfinals of Italia 90 against Cameroon. And in that game, Gary Lineker scored two penalties. Hmm. So, um, so they, they, they came along all at once in that one. So that was the sort of one example I could think of of, oh, we never get penalties, which you could kind of, sort of be a knock on yourself. The other one which I thought I would bring up is... The Bella, the Bella Goodman curse, mm, which I don't okay. know if it's necessarily celebrated, but it's kind of folklory, isn't it? And to remind... Uh, That's a good uh, call. That's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to remind, remind the listeners a little bit of that, it's uh, Bella Goodman, who was a, a very, very successful manager with Benfica. He won two consecutive European Cups in the early 60s. He kind of asked for his terms to be changed. Uh, Benfica said do one and he said uh, words along the lines of your team will not win a european competition in 100 years and sounding like the count from sesame street for some reason and um and, and benfica have since been in eight european finals they have lost all eight and they've got another oh, a good uh, 20 something years or no 40 something years until they, their curse is lifted there so that's not necessarily the, something that the team are proud of but it's very much in the law of the team the the Belgutman story, the curse, but also his just general story, like is similar to a Viking saga or like a Homeric poem or something like that. Of like, <laughs> it's so many like that could not have happened, and yet it did. But you're not sure if it really did. Like the story of him finding out about Eusebio while getting a haircut, like his barber knew a scout or something like that, and it was like, yeah, I heard about this guy. He's really good. And Belgutman was like, well, I'll go watch him. Like it's just so many strange stories like that. But you're right that it is so baked into like the Benfica history that, it, uh, yeah, you're right. It's not one that they're celebrating. You don't have fans like, woo, curses, but it is such a part of it that it is a thing that is almost like institutionalized, at least in my mind. So I think that's, that's probably the best answer. Well done, Mr. Bailey. Well done. Thanks. You got anything? My, my only club one I had, and it's not celebrated by the club, but it seems to be like a, an accepted thing would be that Cruz Azul is bad. Uh, I saw this on an ESPN art- article from uh, Diccionario Popular. Uh, Cruz, uh, Cruz Azuliar is to fail at anything in any moment when everything is in your favor and you think nothing can ruin it. Uh, <laughs> since 1997, Cruz Azul has finished runners-up six occasions. They've gone through 14 head coaches. Um, they basically just find ways to lose titles, to lose uh, championships in dramatic ways. I think the... Biggest one, I think it was against Club America. They're up 2-0 in the 88th minute. They go on to uh, give up two goals in regulation. They lose in a penalty shootout. And it's extended to Mexico fans do not like Cruz Azul jerseys being worn to national team games. And in 2014, the story goes, they went so far as to give their opposing fans, their opposition in the World Cup fans, uh, Cruz Azul jerseys. So there was like a photo of a Germany fan being given a Cruz Azul jersey. Mexico then beat Germany. There's a photo of, uh, I believe, South Korea's manager's son wearing a Cruz Azul jersey. I'm assuming that was a gift for the World Cup. Then Mexico beat South Korea. Uh, so I think like that was a sort of one of like a team being so bad that the other fans of the national team enjoy using them to curse other teams. That was one that I think sort of fits the bill, though not entirely. 
That's the best answer, I think. That's better than the Gutman answer, I think. That's really good because ma- national team fans are proud of Cruz Azul's awfulness. <laughs> yes. I like that. I like uh, that no, a lot. Another national team one would be, uh, it comes from, did you find yourself, by the way, just going through the knowledge on The Guardian to see if any questions like this had been asked? Because I definitely did. I went through about 30 different The Knowledge posts. Yeah, that's where I got my England penalty mm-hmm. list streak from, yes. This one came from that one. Uh, in Denmark, a rigtig Jesper Olsen, a real Jesper Olsen, refers to an egregious mistake in any walk of life. It stems from his notorious back pass at the 86 World Cup, which led to the most exciting team in the competition being beaten 5-1 by Spain. Uh, so I, I had that one as a sort of, I guess, celebrating Jesper Olsen's mistake and adding it to your vernacular. I'm going to throw in there. I did have some just like bad records, if that's what Zach was wondering, uh, asking about. But uh, Ryan, any other nominees for this one before we move to that sort of area? I also have bad records, so why don't you go first? Uh, I just had two. Uh, the, the worst one being Darby County, 11 points in the 2008 season, uh, one win in a year, uh, earliest relegation ever for the Premier League. I believe that was in March. They do well, not... Um, I, Sheffield oh. United very much hold my beer on that record at the moment. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. They do right. They're on, oh, boy. They're, they're on course for like five points, I think, at the moment. Oh, we shall see. We shall <laughs> see. I didn't think about that. Oh, man. But like, yeah, the I wondered if there was a like home of the worst team ever or like – and that is the thing is that even if maybe fans are going to own some of this sort of um, – not glorious history clubs are never going to like really celebrate failure and they're also i then wondered if they're like spite statues ryan's got his finger in the air so i'm gonna pause here go ahead darby play at pride park and they are proud of their record we've got hey, the answer there we go ryan did it ryan connected the dots thank you sir <laughs> i did I'm, i don't know if you did this as well i was wondering if there are like statues or banners that commemorate negative moments like the Gerard slip or something like that or <laughs> like fans celebrating another player scoring that eliminated their rival or like 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 two teams were level on points one team wins another player knocks out the other team and so they win on like by a small points difference but there's there not really a, any of that either wasn't there was a Dan Headbutt statue at some point Ooh, that should be a thing yeah I think I'm pretty there sure was. There you're was. right yeah. I think you're right oh don't make fun of Zidane or his family we still don't really fully know what that one was right something like that it wasn't great either way it shouldn't be celebrated it should not and then the only other one I had from England would be Hull City are currently in the longest drought in the English leagues they have not won silverware since winning the third division in 1966 yes they went up in the Premier League but I believe that was uh, like as a second place team or maybe through the playoffs although if they'd won the playoffs then they would have won silverware so Still no silverware for Hull City uh, since 1966, and Derby County's uh, very, very bad, no good season in 2008. Also, uh, maybe records that the clubs are not proud of. I've got a couple of English ones to finish off this question with. Um, Everton had the most own goals in Premier League history, uh, 53 in 29 seasons. Um, They also have the most missed penalties. They've missed eight Premier League penalties, and they've had uh, 110 given against them as well. The other one I'll single out is a player, Richard Dunn, who's had uh, the most, he's the biggest uh, Premier League own goal scorer. Richard Dunn has scored 10 own goals. He scored six for Manchester City alone. And he also uh, is infamous, infamous for having the most uh, red cards, the joint most red cards in Premier League history. He had eight red cards. So it's not exactly Sergio Ramos levels, but hey, he's, uh, he's maybe the, uh, the Premier League equivalent thereof. One other one, um, there's a team called MK Dons. They've got the record for the most games being an absolute disgrace to football. Um, it's, <laughs> Every game consecutively since they were founded in 2004. 
I knew we'd get it in there somehow. I just wasn't sure how. I knew there'd be an MK Dunn's shot at some point. Well, well executed, Ryan Bailey. Uh, the other one, uh, I forget their name. It's a Madagasy team. Uh, they're like Stad. It sounds like Marseille, as I recall. It's like Stad Olympic something. Uh, but it's a Madagasy team who scored 149, I think it was, own goals in a game uh, to protest their treatment by their club. Uh, they scored that many own goals. That's a fairly... Uh, notorious record. I did look up to see if there's any sort of banner commemorating that, any sort of statue commemorating player solidarity against ownership. I did not find one. Then again, there was not a ton of information on the Madagascar League. (laughs) Shocker, shocker. Uh, Much more information on the Madagascar film franchise. And on that animated note, Tate, let's go to one final question sure. from Joshua Bishop, who asks, at what point will Hansi Flick be considered in the echelon of Pep, Klopp, Jose, etc.? Seems to me, says Joshua, people discuss top managers in the world and they leave him out. Given where he's mm. taken this Bayern team from what they were and his success with the German national team, I feel, says uh, Joshua, that he should be given more credit. Was denken Sie, Taylor? Was denken Sie? I think he, he probably is given a, a lot of credit. He probably could be given more for turning around Bayern. In terms of like when will he be considered in the top, top echelon, I think not necessarily anytime soon unless Bayern continue to do what they've been doing over a couple more seasons. Because, yes, he has success with the German national team, but it's not him as the manager and then moving to Bayern as the senior manager. He's the assistant for Yogi Lowe. Lowe is the same thing with Klinsmann, but I think then it was like Lowe is the genius, Klinsmann is the motivator, then Lowe was the kind of genius for Germany when Germany won the World Cup and Hansi Flick was like also a genius, but not the genius behind the scenes. So I think he needs a little bit more on that resume. What say you, Ryan Bailey? I think I'm going along the same lines there. Yes, he has arguably uh, built the best team in the world, but you know he had some pretty good building blocks to start with there. Um, yeah. He did win the fee- uh, he did not win the FIFA best 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 coach best best award. Um, <laughs> Jurgen Klopp getting that despite winning a treble with Bayern Munich. He was German coach of the year though, and as you mentioned, he did um, a lot of good work with the German national team as Jogi Löw's assistant. He was there from 2006 to 2014, so very much quite literally the rebuild of the German national team. He was there for. I d- I don't know 100 percent what his duties were. I suspect mm-hmm. part of it may have been uh, carrying hand sanitizer for Jogi Löw for whenever his <laughs> hands went either up his nose or in his pants. Um, oh, Yogi. That that's quite possible possible um but but he it's interesting if you compare him to someone like Klopp or Guardiola I think there's there's a difference in those kind of managers yes uh, Hansi Flick now has trophies in his cabinet but he's not quite done the thing of establishing a philosophy and having sort of a cultural impact there he yes he, he does like a similar high press to Jurgen Klopp you could argue and there are things he does but he's not change the game like Jose did, change the game like Klopp and Pep Guardiola have. He's, um, he was sort of thrust into this position at Bayern Munich almost unwittingly with Niko, Niko Kovac's exit. And I think he needs to, to be considered in that band. He needs to have success in a more sustained period, so yeah. a few more trophies perhaps, and also have a mark on the game philosophically, have something that you say, that's Hansi Flick's. I think that is the fundamental point. I think you're absolutely correct, and that is the distinction there. Because, yeah, you look at Pep Klopp, Jose, all players who I would say sort of revolutionized things, or even like with Pep, where it's he kind of played the way Barcelona have always played, but there's tiki-taka, he brings to academy players, he gets the best out of Lionel Messi. Like, he does so much to revitalize things, but revolutionize at the same time, and then obviously continues that with Bayern Munich and with Man City. 
And I and I think like if you're looking at Hansi Flick, who is an excellent manager and has done a great job, and I think what we're both trying to do is not dismiss or disparage Hansi Flick at all, but I would draw a parallel to Zinedine Zidane, who inherits a Madrid team after a manager is sacked, who's not as popular. That manager comes in. Zinedine Zidane wins three Champions Leagues in a row, and we still don't really think of him as the greatest manager in the world. He's not in that conversation really ever. It's always Pep Klopp Jose, and I think that sort of shows it right there. It's like because you're given this team after being a sort of assistant manager for them, given is a harsh way to put it, but you understand what I mean. And then, yeah, you have success, but there's still that question of, is it just that you got the best out of a world-class group of players? Like, what are you doing to then elevate that? And I think you're absolutely right, that if he does that or they continue to win the way they are, then we can say, like, yeah, he is doing it. He is in that conversation. But right now, I think he's just on the outside. I think just on the other side is about right. And I think the, the sort of uh, the litmus test of it, Taylor, might be if there was a big Premier League job available at the moment, if the Chelsea mm-hmm. job was available, would he be a prime candidate, even if he was free? Would he, if, he, if, they, if him and Thomas Tuchel were free, for example, who would be more heavily linked to a big job? I'm not sure it's yeah. Flick. I'm not sure it is either. And, it's, and part of that is because... You know he's not going to leave Bayern. Like, why would you leave that gig only if you're Pep and it's been a while or you want to challenge yourself elsewhere? But I think also you're right that with Thomas Tuchel, it's he kind of continues the Klopp tradition, evolves it at Dortmund, goes to PSG, has the ability to manage big names, big egos. At least I think he does. So I think you're right. It's probably Thomas Tuchel is getting more interest around the world than Hansi Flick, even if Hansi Flick maybe deserves more interest. He doesn't. I think that's a perfect note to end on, sir. Yes, it is. What a good answer. Well done, Ryan Bailey. Anything else you'd like to discuss, Ryan, before we call it a day, other than the fact that I've called you by your first and last name like 16 times on this episode? Oh, I enjoy it. It's an identifier, which uh, which very much picks me out of the crowd. I appreciate it, Tay-Tay. You go Tay-Tay. You go informal. I go uh, Mr. Ryan Bailey Esquire. So I go even more formal. Well, that's what, you know, Michelle Obama said. When they go low, you go both names. <laughs> that is definitely what she said. Uh, Ryan Bailey, thank you very much for helping me answer some listener questions today. You and Graham Ruthven and myself will be back on Monday to do some weekend reviewing, if that works for you. I hope it does. Yavol! Then all that remains to be said is, Ryan, thank you very much. Rai Rai, thank you very much for taking <laughs> the time to talk to me today. It's always a pleasure. Never a chore. My friends call me Risey. Risey out. Uh, And listeners, thank you very much for listening. We will talk to you again very soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.